a very good morning to you and a very warm welcome to Crescent Church. We're really glad that you could join with us. We trust and pray that you'll be blessed by our service this morning. Especially for anyone watching who might not be familiar with Christianity, we really want to thank you for taking the time to listen in. We trust that God's word will speak into your heart because we believe that God's word is living and active and has the power to transform our lives from the inside out through the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for listening in. We're thankful to the Lord that lockdown has eased and some aspects of life are starting to return to normal. But of course, so much of society is still in turmoil in so many ways. So let's pray for God's grace during these days that a world that's searching and suffering might be drawn to the truth and comfort that's found only in the Lord Jesus. Over these few weeks, we're going through a teaching series focusing on the Sermon on the Mount that the Lord Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5. Last week, Jim Crooks opened the series for us, and Jim's back with us again this morning to take us through the next section of the chapter. But as we begin today, the Crescent Band have recorded Crown Him with Many Crowns, a hymn that celebrates the matchless supremacy and sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ over all things, which is such an encouraging reminder for all of us in times like these. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee, and heal him as thy chosen king through all eternity. Let's turn now to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the Lamb upon the throne, who came to a world in need and died to save us, who gave his everything to bring us to you. We thank you that death had no hold on him, that he broke the very bonds of sin and death and rose victorious. And we thank you that this morning he is risen and seated at your right hand, triumphant over all, and that through him we can have the gift of eternal life. Father, when we look around us at a world in chaos, full of sickness and despair, full of prejudice and injustice, we praise you this morning that he has overcome the world. 
We thank you that those who trust in the Lord Jesus have a hope that transcends this world, that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We pray that in the difficulties of life you'll give us a renewed sense of that sure and certain hope in Christ. We pray for our world in these days of turmoil, that the eyes of everyone who's lost and searching would be drawn to the one who came to save them. And we pray that as we turn to your word this morning as Jim opens it to us, that we'll come to appreciate your son more and more, that our eyes will be opened to the beauty and grandeur of his character and his plan for our lives. We pray that we'll come away from this service changed, that we'll want to cultivate a deeper and more personal devotion to you. And we pray for our church family at this time. We pray for those who are older and vulnerable. We pray for all those who are suffering and grieving, for those who have lost loved ones in these days, for those facing economic uncertainty. We pray, our God, that you will draw near to them, that you will comfort and uphold them in the way that only you can that they will find in you everything they need for each day. We thank you for the privilege of coming into your holy presence through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, giving you thanks. Amen. Sophie McMillan is going to read the kids' story to us now, and it's called The Young Hero and the Horrible Giant, which is all about how David faced Goliath. And after Sophie reads, we're going to have one of our favourite parts of the service, the kids' song, and it's called All Through History. And it talks about lots of characters in the Bible, like David, who put their trust in God and relied on him whenever they faced big things in life. So all the mums and dads, get ready to gather your kids around the screen. And no one has any excuse for not doing the actions, because the actions will appear during the song. But first, Sophie is going to read the story for us. The Young Hero and the Horrible Giant The Story of David and Goliath, taken from 1 Samuel chapter 17 God's people had some scary enemies, but the Philistines were the scariest of them all. And now the Philistines had come to fight them. The Philistines had a secret weapon called Goliath. Goliath was a terrifying soldier, and worst of all, a giant. A giant so strong and so tall and so scary that no one had ever been able to fight him and live to tell the tale. So there they were, the Philistines standing on the top of one hill, God's people standing on top of the other. Every day, Goliath came out and shouted, Send your best soldier to fight me. If he wins, we will be your slaves. But if I win, you will be our slaves. No one spoke. No one moved. Chickens, Goliath bellowed. Your God can't save you. I'll rip your heads off and have you on toast. His beady, greedy eyes glowered at them hungrily from under his horrible helmet. As if any minute he he really might just gobble them all up. And he laughed his terrible laugh. (laughs) It boomed, echoing horribly around and around the dry, dry valley. Well, Goliath might just as well have been a green slimy monster with three heads because God's people froze with fear. Their eyes glazed over and they turned deathly pale. They knew if someone didn't do something quick, if someone didn't save them. But God would do something. He would send someone to save them. Now David was the youngest son of Jesse and his brothers were soldiers in the army. One day, when David brought his brothers their lunches, he saw Goliath and he saw how scared everyone was. Don't be afraid, David said. I'll fight him for you. You're only a little shepherd boy, the king said, and Goliath is a great soldier. How will you fight him? God will help me, David said. So the king gave David his royal armour to wear, but it was too heavy and too big and David couldn't even walk. I won't need this, David said. Instead, David picked out out five smooth stones from the stream. One, two, three, four, five. Took his slingshot and walked towards Goliath. Step, step, step. Goliath walked towards David. Thud, thud, thud. You, Goliath peered down at the small boy. 
I'm little, David shouted up to him, but God is great. Goliath laughed an even terribler laugh than usual. <laughs> it went. With just one swing of his giant sword, Goliath could finish the boy off. But David kept going. It isn't how strong you are or how many swords and spears you have that will save you. It is God who saves you. This is God's battle and God always wins his battles. David put a stone in his sling, swung it around and let it go. The little stone flew whizz like a bullet through the air and struck Goliath thud right between the eyes. Goliath stopped laughing. He stumbled and staggered and crash fell dead. When the Philistines saw Goliath was dead, they ran away. And when God's people saw them running away, they cheered. God had saved his people. David was a hero. Many years later, God would send his people another young hero to fight for them and to save them. But this hero would fight the greatest battle the world has ever known. God again. The Lord is good, the Lord is strong, and we will live our lives for Him.
We're really grateful to our Crescent singers and musicians for recording the music for us today. And our next song is My Worth Is Not In What I Own, which talks about how each of us can find our true value and worth and sense of satisfaction in the fact that we are loved by Almighty God. And it speaks to some of the themes that Jim will be exploring through our passage this morning. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Scott Davison is now going to read to us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 48, before Jim Crooks brings the message to us from this passage. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 48. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body go into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. For if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, Good morning everyone. Um, This morning we are continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we only managed to get through 16 verses of uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, but this week we have the task of completing the rest of that chapter. The Sermon on the Mount has two major themes. First, it smashes the materialistic worldview that sees life as a meaningless cycle of events that take place within a closed physical system. We have a Father in Heaven, a benevolent, generous and kind Creator. His character is morally beautiful and life is found when we build an intimate and trusting relationship with Him. So that's the first big theme. 
The second theme is that the Lord Jesus invites us to be transformed at the deepest level of our personalities, to have our hearts changed so that we become perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Christ's analysis of the human condition is that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. So salvation for humanity will only come about from the inside out. It won't come through structural reform or big picture political theories. He offers to change individual men and women for, by giving us heart level righteousness. Now, obviously, we cannot develop this thing on our own. Such a thing would be impossible. In fact, it turns out that the first step is to admit our own spiritual bankruptcy. We were then taught last week how to ask our Heavenly Father to give us the spiritual resources that we need so that we can develop heart-level righteousness. In this study, we're going to find out what a righteous heart looks like. And our Lord furnishes us with six case studies, examples from real life that he uses to explain to us what heart-level righteousness looks like. The six examples are murder, adultery, divorce, oath-taking, non-retaliation, and loving our enemies. The six examples seem to me to be structured as three pairs. So we're going to take them in pairs and in so doing develop three big points about the righteous heart. So that you know where uh, we're heading, uh, our three teaching points are these. The righteous heart develops internal purity. It doesn't merely focus on external actions. That's the first point. Secondly, the righteous heart seeks consistent moral living. It doesn't look for excuses. And thirdly, the righteous heart overflows with generous grace. It doesn't set limits. Before we do any of that, however, we need to clear away a common misconception. Some people think that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is presenting a new Christian set of ethics, a new set of rules and regulations which should guide our behaviour. So, 1,300 years earlier, Moses had come down the mountains with one set of rules, and now Jesus is giving us a new set of rules. But that cannot be the case. In the passage we have just read, Jesus could not have been clearer. I haven't come to abolish anything Moses told you, he says. The Old Testament law is as unmovable as the universe itself. I have come to fulfil the law, not abolish it. Well, hold on a minute, you might protest. I have been reading ahead in chapter 5. And those case studies you talked about, well, they all follow the same pattern. The Old Testament law says this thing, but I say a different thing. You get that formula time and time again. You've been taught this thing, but now I tell you a different thing. Surely that is abolishing one set of guidelines for living and replacing them with a different set. So there is a straightforward contradiction between the case studies and the Lord's earlier comment that the Old Testament law is not being abolished. Well, let me offer an explanation for that apparent contradiction, and then I will justify it from the text. Here is the explanation. I don't know uh, if you have ever seen the underside of a boat. The bit of the hull that sits out of the water may be shiny and freshly painted, but down near the keel a thousand nasty things lurk. Over time, barnacles start to accumulate and accrete on the hull, leaving an encrusted mess. And the same thing happened to the Old Testament law. The Pharisees and the scribes regarded God's law as a burden. They called the Torah that very thing. It's outrageous. So they decided to tweak it a bit. So if God's law prohibited something, then the Pharisees narrowed the scope of that command. So let's imagine, uh, I don't know, there's a, a law forbidding you from taking anything from the stationery cupboard in your work. Well, a good Pharisee like me might come along and narrow the scope of that rule. That prohibition only applies to the top shelf of the stationery cupboard, which holds staplers and elastic bands. It's perfectly okay to steal paper and big pens from the lower shelves. But then on the other hand, there might be a law which permitted something, but a clever Pharisee might widen its scope. So on the road between Belfast and Newton Ards, at one section I'm permitted to travel at 60 miles an hour. But don't worry, late at night, you can nudge that limit up to 70 miles an hour. And over time, the Pharisees accumulated a whole range of additions or dilutions of Moses' law. They spread over the whole Torah like barnacles on a ship's hull. So in this chapter, we see the Lord Jesus scraping the barnacles off the hull. He isn't abolishing Moses' law. He's clearing away a lot of man-made rubbish so that Moses' law could be restored to its original purpose and beauty. So that was the explanation. Now, let me show the justification for that interpretation from the text. 
When our Lord talked about the Old Testament, he always treated it as the Word of God. He nearly always used a stock phrase when referring to Scripture. It stands written, he would say. But here in chapter 5, you may have noticed he uses much more ambiguous phrases. You have heard it said, or it has been said. You have heard that it was said. But the killer argument here is to look at what the Pharisees were teaching. Look at uh, verse 43 if you have the text in front of you. You have heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Well, you could search through the entire Old Testament and you will never find that statement. Moses taught the people to love their neighbours as themselves, but the Pharisees thought that was too burdensome. So they narrowed its scope to people of the same race and religion. Now think what they were doing. The law given at Mount Sinai to Moses wasn't an arbitrary set of rules. It was an expression of what God is like. If you read through Moses' law, you will encounter a God who is fair and just, who cares about animal welfare, who's concerned about the exploitation of foreigners and orphans and widows. We find a God who loves a well-ordered society. He loves people to be creative and to enjoy the fruits of their labours. But the Pharisees had obscured all that moral beauty with their man-made traditions. So they taught a whole set of lies about God. They said he was the sort of God who would allow a man to divorce his wife provided he had the right paperwork. He was the sort of God who allowed you to break your promises as long as you've been careful not to mention God's name when making the promise. He was the sort of God who expected people to seek vengeance in each other, who didn't mind if you wished another person to be dead. In the word, they had taken the revelation of God's character and had distorted it, reducing the religion to a man-made set of ethics. And it's here we see just how beautiful the Lord's concept of heart-level righteousness is. Christianity isn't just another set of rules. It's not another guidebook to help us behave better. There's something much deeper going on here. Strip away all the pharisaical barnacles and you'll catch a glimpse of God's moral beauty. You'll see his abundant mercy and justice and his love and his holiness. It's like turning your eyes away from a soap opera on TV and gazing at the grandeur of the Rocky Mountains. At Sinai, the people couldn't approach God. But now, says Jesus, I have come to fulfill the law. So if Moses' law was like a, a pen-drawn sketch, then Jesus Christ is the full-colour reality. We see the light of God's character in the actions and teachings of Jesus Christ. All the things that the law hinted at, the little glimpses it gave us of God's moral beauty, we're now seeing them in full bloom. Now look with me at verse 20. For I tell you, says Jesus, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying here? Does he mean that if the Pharisees keep on average 200 rules a day, we have to keep 350 rules a day? Of course not. This surpassing righteousness is greater in depth. It reaches down below the surface of rule keeping down into the very heart of man. In fact, it is the very righteousness of Christ himself. You see, Moses' law was written on tablets of stone. But for the Christian, the offer is being made here that the law of God will be written on our hearts. And this is the big idea behind the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is offering heart righteousness. Not a superficial collection of rules for practical living. Not a man-made ethical system to replace an earlier version. First he strips away the accretions around the Old Testament law and then he takes that what we might call beautiful but pen-drawn sketch into the full-colour reality of his own morally perfect character. And finally he offers to plant that moral beauty, the moral beauty of that righteousness, that perfect moral life into your heart. Well, you say that's a lovely piece of theory. But what does a righteous heart look like? Well, to help us earth all these concepts, the Lord Jesus takes six case studies. And I'm going to suggest that from the first two, we learn that the righteous heart develops internal purity. It doesn't merely focus on external actions. The first illustration is about murder and anger. You'll find it in verses 21 through 26. See, the Pharisees said it was okay to regard people with implacable hatred, to wish they were dead, to utterly despise them and regard them as worthless, provided you didn't actually murder them. But in Christ's new heart righteousness, it towers over that tawdry little tradition. 
The real Christian will not rest until any anger in his heart is resolved. If it means that he has to leave a church service while the speaker is still at the lectern, then they should leave immediately and get it sorted out. People who at times feel an inner rage nearly always do so whenever an idol inside their own heart is threatened. Think of the emperor called Nebuchadnezzar. He flew into a rage when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down before his gold idol. They threatened his own sense of being powerful and so he became enraged. It's a really useful exercise, brothers and sisters, to think carefully about what makes you angry. That process almost certainly will uncover idolatries in your heart. The Lord then goes on to explain that the white heat of anger can sometimes cool into a cold contempt. He uses the word raka, which is an Aramaic insult. It is a most serious thing to regard another human being with contempt, to despise them. If you feel like that about someone, then stop whatever you're doing right now and repent, because you are walking a perilous path. Now that point can operate at the level of society where an entire people group can be regarded with contempt. Even Christians can allow ignorant prejudice to colour their thinking about ethnic groups or religious groups or people who hold alien political views. When we think of that sort of prejudice, we can see just how subversive the parable of the Good Samaritan was. The Lord told that parable to cut down all sorts of ethnic prejudices. In verses 27 through 30, the Lord talks here about sexuality. And again, we see how real heart-level righteousness is a deeper thing than the mere avoidance of wrong action. He uses strong metaphors in these verses. He talks about gouging out an eye with which offends. But all he means here is that we should take painful and practical steps to remove ourselves from temptation. So let me address married people just now. If there is even the hint of an overly friendly relationship forming with someone of the opposite sex who is not your spouse, cut that relationship down immediately. No texting. No cheeky WhatsApp messages. Even if it makes you seem cold or humourless, take the painful, practical decision to avoid temptation. Now the common theme running through these first two case studies is that the righteous heart develops internal purity. It doesn't merely focus on external actions. So you don't have to clamp down on inner rage because you won't even allow anger to defile your heart in the first place. You don't have to drop your eyes when an attractive married person walks into the room because you won't even entertain adulterous thoughts in the heart. The second pair of case studies are about divorce and oath-taking. Now the issue of divorce is incredibly sensitive and you should not take the few comments I now make as an exhaustive treatment of the subject. Verses 31 to 32 of this chapter should be read alongside the much fuller treatment of divorce which Matthew gives us in chapter 19 of his Gospel. It would seem that the Pharisees who asked the Lord this question about divorce were leaning to the lax interpretation of rabbinical thought which allowed a man to divorce his wife for really any reason provided he had the right paperwork. <laughs> The Lord doesn't answer their question. And there's a pattern to be observed here. Every time the Lord Jesus is asked a question about divorce, he responds by talking about marriage. In other words, he turns it around. He focuses people on the moral beauty of that creatorial gift given to humanity in Genesis 2. There is something about the sinful heart which always looks for an escape into selfishness. What's the exception? What's the excuse? But the righteous heart takes loyalty and integrity with great seriousness. So our Lord treats divorce seriously. If I understand this logic correctly, the Lord permits divorce on only one ground. If the marital bond has already been shattered by infidelity or by violent abuse, then divorce may be the least worst option. Scripture does not support divorce on the grounds called irretrievable breakdown. An act of physical sexual infidelity must have taken place before a divorce is even an option. From other parts of scripture, I personally would argue that violent abuse also shatters the marital bond. But even in the case of adultery, divorce is not inevitable. The late John Stott wisely refused to talk to anyone about divorce 
before he had first talked to them about marriage and reconciliation. Now at first sight, the next case study, recorded in verses 33 through 37, seems to have nothing to do with the issues raised by the divorce case. The Pharisees, you see, had constructed this elaborate set of rules, such as swearing by the temple or the city, and they did that in order to allow promises to be broken. The implication, of course, was that if you hadn't made this one of these formal oaths, it was perfectly okay to break your word. And once again, we see the Lord turn the argument around, away from a list of excuses to the idea of heart-level righteousness. The righteous heart will always let its yes be yes and its no be no. Instead of looking for excuses to lie in some rules over wordsmithing, the righteous heart will always act with integrity. So if you say you will do something, then don't break your word. Don't be an absolutely person. The student scene has more than enough absolutely people. You ask them to do something, absolutely comes the reply, five minutes before you need the thing done, an apologetic text comes through. Don't promise what you can't deliver, and always deliver what you promise. If you say yes, then mean it. God always keeps his promises. He doesn't do half-baked schemes. So real heart-level righteousness, if you let it bloom in your life, will change you into a person whose word can be relied upon. I am so grateful to the Lord for the reliable young Christians in our own church. So when we place these two case studies side by side, we do see that they have a common theme. The righteous heart seeks consistent moral living. It doesn't look for excuses. It values loyalty and integrity at all times and doesn't look for easy ways to escape into selfishness. Verses 38 through 42, well, they're really four little cameos which all deal with the issue about retaliation. The first clarifying point we must make here is that the Lord is talking to us as individuals. The New Testament is quite clear that the state has a God-given duty to punish evildoers. So we shouldn't use these verses to make any political points about the relationship between the state and the individual. When the Lord tells us to offer our cheek to someone who has just struck us on the cheek, he's using an Eastern idiom. In Middle Eastern culture, uh, even today, to strike someone on the cheek is to insult them. So perhaps the best way to understand this first cameo is that we should allow someone who has just insulted us to insult us again. Without striking back. Now that doesn't mean we should be doormats. Remember that the Lord himself challenged the high priest during his trial. The point is that we shouldn't hit back. We shouldn't repay evil with evil. When it comes to the other three cameos, the only limit to the Christian's generosity will be the limit which love itself imposes. Take begging as a good example. It's not loving to give money to someone who will use that money to pursue their addictions because you are simply accelerating their path to self-destruction. In a culture with a welfare state, it's not loving to give money to someone who has made no effort to engage with state support systems to move them back into employment. So we are called to be generous and not to retaliate. We're not called to be foolish doormats who do more harm than good. Be as generous as love allows. Now, even with the caveats I have applied, you may be tempted to uh, write this paragraph off as unrealistic. Well, before you do that, just remember who spoke these words. There was a man who turned the other cheek so that he could be punched and spat upon. These words come from the man who walked the extra mile, stumbling under the weight of his own cross. This paragraph is spoken by the man who had his clothes gambled in a soldier's wager. Our Lord reserves his most daring case study to the end. He tells us to love our enemies. And he begins by criticising one of the Pharisaical rules that had accreted onto the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. And as I said earlier, you will not find that statement anywhere in the Old Testament. But I guess it's the way we naturally think. We love our families and friends. We are indifferent to most other people. And we can be tempted to hate our enemies. The love of God is in a different category from that natural approach to relationships. It was while we were God's enemies that Christ died for us. He showed love and loyalty to the very men who were nailing him to the cross. He even prayed for them. And the righteous heart will reach out in love to its enemies. But how are we to achieve that in real life? Well, 
Let's build an answer up from the straightforward to the complicated. First of all, we need to acknowledge that some believers spend a lot of time fantasising about getting revenge on those who have hurt them. And that is unhealthy. Dreaming of personal vengeance is wrong, says the New Testament. Secondly, we should work hard to avoid ever getting bitter. Bitterness can defile an entire life. One of the best ways to overcome bitterness is to force yourself to pray for your enemies. Don't run around telling others that you're doing that. That's just spiritual preening. But quietly, in the secrecy of your conversations with your Father in Heaven, you can find calmness to pray for those who have wronged you. Moving up to the third level, we can show kindness to those who have wronged us. Sometimes praying for people can stop them from becoming like giants in our, who stomp all over our imaginations. You can start to see them as just normal, flawed human beings who have troubles of their own. So instead of tension existing all the time when they enter the room, a small act of kindness can allow some sort of stability to grow over time. Sometimes you can then start to see that in the past, we ourselves have acted badly toward others. And that's a really important and helpful moment. Without moments like that, we can become harsh, critical hypocrites. But what about forgiveness? This is the toughest level. Obviously, if an enemy repents, we are commanded to forgive. But what about those situations where there is no repentance? I sometimes find it helpful to imagine myself handing my forgiveness over to God for safekeeping, knowing that it will only be released, as it were, when the other party has repented. We are told to love our enemies, and loving people involves wanting them to repent of their sins. So we shouldn't misunderstand these verses. We should care about justice as deeply as God cares about justice. Now, when those last two case studies are put together, we see that the righteous heart overflows with generous grace. It doesn't set limits to its love. Now, these six case studies have given us a really detailed insight into what heart-level righteousness looks like. The righteous heart develops internal purity. It doesn't merely focus on external actions. The righteous heart seeks consistent moral living. It doesn't look for excuses or exceptions. And thirdly, the righteous heart overflows with generous grace. It doesn't set limits. The Sermon on the Mount is only getting underway. The Lord has so much more to teach us. But we can pause for a moment and ask ourselves, is that the sort of person I want to be? Do I want to be a human being whose heart is undefiled by anger and lust? Do I want loyalty and integrity to be consistent qualities in my life? Do I want to be a generous and gracious human being? And it seems to me that any sane person would answer yes to those questions. Those moral qualities are of much greater value than owning a yacht or some sprawling mansion in Beverly Hills. More valuable than par. And so it might be no bad thing for us to reflect on this teaching for the rest of the day by asking ourselves honestly, what sort of person do I want to become? We all know that left to ourselves, we could never develop a righteous heart. But Christ offers to change us. What an amazing offer. He offers to transform us so that we develop the moral beauty of our Father in heaven. In the Lord's own language, he offers to change us so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The Bible teachers who follow me will explain how this righteous heart is developed within us. But for now, as we turn to prayer, let us concentrate on what we want to become. After we pray, we'll sing a final hymn. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful moral vision of our righteous heart. We're so grateful that your Son doesn't offer us an ethical system, a list of rules and regulations that only deal with the externalities of life. And as we have listened to him teach, we long to be your sons and daughters, to bear the family likeness of moral beauty. So we ask that you would develop within us an internal purity. We ask that you would develop within us a consistent moral life. And we ask that you transform mean spirit and vengeful hearts into a righteous heart that overflows with grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.